This is Whitley Strieber, and this is Dreamland. You've reached the edge of the world. Aloha, Dreamland. It is Jeremy Vaney, and I'm here to tell you that Ghost Dog is a Mystery Box is the name of the website that my guest today, Stephanie Quick, uh, keeps her writings, her blog posts, her podcast uh, links to shows that she's done, you know, like this, like she's been a guest on shows. And said blog can be found at www.stephaniequick.home.blog. And today, we're going to be talking about one of a myriad bunch of subjects that she knows about, sex magic. I heard her talk about it on uh, Vuk. You remember Vuk? He was here a, a couple of uh, months ago. Vuk's podcast, um, which is Tracing Owls, and I actually uh, shared that podcast with Whitley Strieber, <laughs> who, who doesn't know that. Uh, and Whitley was like, ooh, I, I've had some of those experiences, whatever they were talking about on, on his show. And I was like, no, Whitley, you can't poach my guest. You can't poach my guest this early in our uh, working relationship. I says to him, didn't say that at all. Actually, I'm embellishing. But uh, I got her first. <laughs> so sorry, Stephanie. <laughs> and sorry, Whitley, too. Um, anywho, I don't know anything about sex magic. I listened to their show. I had my own questions. I jotted them down. They were few, not many. And that's good because that means this is going to be a real conversation. And um, uh, so we'll talk about that. Uh, for the free portion of the program and for the subscriber portion, we'll get into her own personal high strangeness experiences as well. So definitely click the subscribe button at unknowncountry.com, which is the home site for this year Dreamland show. Um, and uh, set yourself up with a, with a subscription. Why not? Um, otherwise, either way, I will... Prolong your agony no longer. And be aware that this hair is going to be happening all during the interview and probably some of this sweat. So uh, get ready. Get set. Sex magic. Here we come. Ladies and gentlemen, without further ado, please welcome to Dreamland, Stephanie Quick. Stephanie, thanks for, uh, thanks for coming on here and doing this with me. Oh, no, I think it should be pretty fun. It's a a hot topic, as they say, and uh, so it's usually fun to talk about, and there's a, a lot. It's a definitely uh, sex runs through all these uh, mythology and strange encounters and stuff very strongly, so it's important, too. Yeah, I mean, I don't know anything about sex or sex magic, so <laughs> this ought to be good. Uh, I, I don't, first, let's go over the birds and the bees. No. Um, so, well, first, actually, let's go over what brings you to the table in this. What is your background with this? Well, uh, let's see. It's always kind of a, a squicky, icky topic for me from this angle because, um, I am 60 now. So I was uh, born in the early 60s and um, grew up uh, in the 60s and the 70s and graduated from high school in 1980. 
And so um, it was really a time in uh, America where I was living is specifically in the greater San Francisco Bay Area where there was a lot of uh, sexual revolution happening. You know, you had the, the hippies, you had uh, San Francisco becoming a mecca for uh, uh, queer and gay people to be at. And um, part of this was there was a lot of, at that time, um, this is before Me Too and everything. Uh, and in that area, there was a lot of uh, sexual predators against children and young women in that area. And um, so I was uh, sexualized and um, I had, uh, as a very young girl, you know, like seven, eight uh, grown men, um, I had a number of grown men in cars tried to kidnap me when I was growing up and walking around our suburb, Castro wow. Valley, where I grew up. Um, yeah, and uh, I, and this is another reason why I always hate talking about this, but I mean, obviously there's billions of people on earth and how did they get here? People find other people hot, right? So, <laughs> but I, I was also a person that a lot of people, um, well, I don't know, like a lot, many people, uh, you, you know, wanted to uh, date me or uh, portray me artistically nude or <laughs> type of thing. So I ha had like a lot of sexual attention directed at me by a lot of different people from the time I was very young. And um, so even before I became consciously interested in uh, sex magic or magic at all, um, I was having to learn how to manage that. Because, you know, there's a lot of these, no, I did not want to get kidnapped and, and sexually abused by a grown man. <laughs> so it's like, how do you take that energy, which is you know, I would say in some ways it's kind of like a perversion of the erotic, but it's still sexual energy. It can still result in, for example, if you're uh, for both people are fertile, it can still result in pregnancy, which is, you know, sex, the, the function of sex. Um, so for me, a lot of the, my first impetus was like handling all this coming at me that, and um, that's really a lot of how I came to it. Now, as it happens with, also, as I uh, matured and went through puberty, um, I had some people that were interested in me where I was interested in them back. <laughs> and so, um, you know, I'm a Lucky you. I, yes, I know. <laughs> no, it's true. It's true. I, I, I look at some of the people that have been, uh, you know, boyfriends or whatever. I'm like, wow, you know, they're like really good looking and really sweet people and very smart. But, uh, you know, so I'm, you know, I mean, I enjoy sex. I enjoy uh, the erotic. And um, for me, it goes just, you know, beyond sex or other people. Um, that whole kind of creative flow that you find, for example, in nature or being out in a storm, that type of erotic sensuality. Um, so I kind of saw it from, from both angles. And then, um, and it's weird because I was thinking about this recently because talking about uh, growing up uh, in Castro Valley, I, as it turns out, looking back on it, was pretty strongly empathic, right? When you experience other people's thoughts, physical sensations, emotions um, without a discernible cause, you know, from the time I was pretty young. And it turned out that it was like um, three other young women that I grew up with all have the same type of capacity. One of them, and it's funny because they're all very kind of in very logical, like a lawyer, um, scientist, and a computer programmer, developer. 
Um, and they all kind of came to it logically like, okay, I'm experiencing these things very strongly. And the only way that it could be coming at me is through like a subtle means or non-physical that we know about yet means. Um, so we all have this type of thing. And then, you know, part of that for me, especially when I started to get like a mire. Uh, early 30s and started to pursue more uh, practices with uh, physical human teachers. Um, and I started to become a little bit more adept with uh, navigating consciousness and doing energy body, body uh, exercises and stuff. Um, I would pick up on when other people were uh, thinking of me erotically, which, I mean, <laughs> it can be very startling, I'll just say it. I, a lot of this in the beginning, I, I would just be laying there peacefully sleeping in my little bed. And suddenly, you know, you're like startled awake. And it's just like this very uh, sexual feeling that's kind of like at you, but in most cases, very disorganized and kind of feeling like you're being touched and stuff. And it's like, what the heck is going on? And, and you know, then it's over pretty quickly. And, you know, so I would just, um, I was uh, sitting with Leslie Temple Thurston of Corelight at that time. And she'd say, you know, you should always just ask your guides if you have any question, whatever it may be. So I'd be like, who is this? What's going on? And it happened several times in succession over a number of months that I have this experience. And then the next day, someone would suddenly evince a strong, uh, like romantic social interest in me that they hadn't before. And it's kind of like, oh, so finally I put it together. <laughs> it's. It, for me, the most parsimonious explanation is that someone was having an erotic dream about me and I happened to, you know, tune in on it because it's, you know, it's about you. So there's going to be a in the mind or whatever, that kind of connection. But that got me a lot more interested in this. Um, and then I was at that around that time, too, I was living at a Tibetan Buddhist meditation center. We have a lot of monks and lamas and Rinpoches and, and stuff, teachers coming through. And so I also had some interesting experiences there. Um, that led me to it that were like more consciously directed i'm okay since we're talking about this i'll say it i we had uh one uh major teacher come through and was there for a few days and one of the uh, monks uh, lamas that was traveling with him um good looking nice young guy who had actually had a premonition a very strong premonition of meeting him about a year before this happened but um so, you know, he was very charming and we spent some time together and, um, it, you know, he was interested in everything and people were teasing me about it because there's this whole kind of like jokey thing in a lot of Tibetan Buddhism, like, oh, they're supposed to be celibate, <laughs> but they're all randy or whatever. I don't know. Anyway, which kind of got on my nerves because I didn't feel like it was anyone's business. But um, so it was weird because I... <laughs> This is the type of thing, I'm sorry, I shouldn't just keep being so embarrassed, but um, so I've always worn a lot of skirts because um, I have problems with my uh, pelvis and stuff and, and, and the nerve damage, so it's more comfortable. And, you know, I've, I've never had a problem with underwear staying up, but when this monk was around, or Lama, and thinking about me, and it's like, suddenly it's like my underwear, you know, you're just feeling like, oh, this underwear is just so uncomfortable. I just, oh, what, you know, and I swear one time I, it, I was just standing there, not doing anything, perfectly fine pair of underwear just fell right off my butt onto the ground. And I was like, okay, this is it. 
this is too much. So it's one of the few times, usually I don't do anything uh, physically magical, but I actually tied a knot just in the front of the underwear that wouldn't make any difference to how it fit or anything, but it's just like, I'm keeping these off. Because <laughs> it's like with, I was talking with someone else about another strange experience I had uh, recently. And it's just like, you know, you could just pick up the phone and call, right? You don't need to shape shift into a bird that comes and checks on me in the office when I'm working. You could just pick up the phone and call. But I think when you get a lot around a lot of people that, um, you know, meditating a lot, doing a lot of these practices, you know, your thoughts tend to follow your emotions and, and the erotic can be a very strong force. So it's, it's natural. I don't take, I don't hold it against anyone if it's just, especially if it's something they're just kind of, um, finding themselves doing, but, uh, yeah. So those type of experiences made me very interested in this aspect of things. Mostly because I didn't really see any of this addressed anywhere back at the time. This is like in the 90s, mostly. Um, so I started speaking out and then... Hold on. Let me just jump in here for a sec. Because you said a lot. Yeah. <laughs> there's, a, there's already a lot to unpack there. <laughs> and we're back. <laughs> the first thing that jumped out at me was um, human teachers. So have you had not human teachers? And oh, how yeah. does one, I, I, before we even get to that, I mean, as you're rattling off, you know, spirit guides, I was at a monastery with monks and, uh, you know, shape-shifting into a bird. Like, if you're at a point now in your life where you're comfortable rattling these things off, what was the point where these were real for you? Like, what was the, I mean, because you don't just, it just doesn't come out of nowhere that you end up like at a Buddhist monastery and you end up into these things um was there a point where you were like okay this is really real like this is more real than than what i'm living here and so i've got to pursue this what was that point for you from the moment that i can remember being alive i was always wanting to know okay what is the truth behind everything i just always had that drive from the time i was very small um I became interested in the uh, paranormal and more Fortiana um, when I was probably around, probably around eight. And I started really taking a lot of books out of the library and stuff. Um, looking back on it, it's a strange thing. My uh, mom's mom, I was really close to her. We, um, she died when I was three. And I'm, I have a younger brother and sister. I'm the only one that has memories of her. We were very close. She spoiled me insanely. <laughs> you know, just like I'm sitting there, don't touch the butter, Stephanie. And I'm just like licking butter off the cube on the table and stuff. She's like, Ooh. um, and so she died when I was three. And looking back on it, it's like I, I, I always felt her presence very strongly. And, um, we spent a lot of time in the Sierra Nevadas as I was a child. And if anyone has ever read uh, Barbara Ehrenreich's book, Living with a Wild God, she talks about a mystical experience of the uh, consciousness in that area of the world that she had that just like blew her mind open. And I've had experience of that same consciousness there every time we went there, but I didn't know it would be anything different. Is this um, a Sierra Nevadas in Colombia? No, in California. Okay. Yeah, I'm uh, was born in Fresno, California, and I've lived in California all my life. Okay. Um, so 
and then it's kind of here's another weird thing i never thought it was that odd but then looking back on it you're like what so we used to play you know that light as a feather stiff as a board thing where you levitate people when you're little kids we do this at this one friend of ours house and we were on like seven nine and um but they always kind of used to mix it with i don't know a particular urban folklore about was this person died in a car accident because they were out partying and being naughty or whatever and it was like oh yeah because we'd get great results right you'd have to like stand up sometimes to hold your arms all the way above your head i'm looking back and i'm thinking how can this be possible but then i i go back into the sense memory of it and it's you know how you can feel i mean i could feel the uh the body lifting up where so i had to you know uh not to to uh lift my arms uh very quickly to not lose co contact right and you know how when you touch someone you could tell if they're tense or not and they'd be perfectly relaxed so i'm thinking back how can this be i don't know but apparently these things were happening when i was 20 i had had a a, a recurring issue with breathing that first erupted when I was about 15. And I was expected at this time to maybe kind of, well, actually my uh, doctor had told everyone in my family to make their peace with me dying. I was really sick. And he tried this one uh, procedure to see if it could break the cycle of coughing. And it did, but before it did, I ended up uh, going into convulsions for 20 minutes. And I had a big old near-death experience. And this was before, um, like, Donahue and all those shows in afternoon TV were, had talked about near-death experiences. So I had no idea what was going on. But um, I was basically, all of a sudden, just like in the void, like really loud, really big, really close, nothing no gravity uh no 3d space no kept no like uh molecules nothing i mean just like incredibly disorienting and terrifying um and this is when i went met my uh spirit guides or um rinpoche said they sound like the tathagatas which is a kind of a uh, bodhisattva in tibetan buddhism i don't know but um they're like okay if you want help we can offer they like they made themselves really obvious but they didn't impose so i was like okay they and talk to you? they just gave me all these teachings and it was like talking it was like hearing thoughts inside your head it was um taking my consciousness and holding it in that space aware it was um holding my energy body in various ways and uh giving me a transmission so i could do that myself going forward okay. so it was like kind of multi-factorial <laughs> Um, so when I woke up from that, I was like, um, and I worked with the thing that I really, I don't know, I still can't get over it about these beings is they're very, um, kind of hands off or they, they really let you exercise your own free will and they give you a lot of space. It's like completely no pressure, but they're also incredibly generous. Basically anything that I want to ask over these decades since then, I can ask and I'll get it answered one way or the other. Um, so in the beginning, I was really trying to work with these concepts and seeing whether or not they made sense, whether or not they seemed to hold true. And um, yeah, they, they, it's all been incredibly helpful for me. So I still have that contact with those beings. And um, yeah, and then 
you know, over time, um, I've made, it sounds like I just sound like such a California goofy woman, but I've made friends with, you know, you have various trees or nature divas or animal spirits or particular animals, uh, domestic or wild animals. Um, there's all these alliances and allies that you can make. Um, so the lady who would change into a bird was, I, I was involved with her and she was, um, heavily uh had trained very heavily over many decades with uh several different uh indigenous north american teachers so i learned a lot from her but yeah she could do that it was very how do you odd know she could do that what how would how would you know that what would happen um well i mean it's it's one of those things where you you know i don't expect anyone else to believe it right um, I'm just telling people, this is what I've been through and this is how I've interpreted it in light of my entire experience. And if you haven't had that experience, you don't know me, why should you believe it, right? But just, I mean, no, I know there's people who've had similar experiences. <laughs> yeah. But um, when we were uh, together, I, I had worked at this one shop and um, it's a sign shop. And so it's kind of one of those um, kind of small industrial park type of things where you have like a little uh, uh, big uh, shop space. And then at the front has like a, uh, a glass front and then like the glass a door that'll swing open back and forth, just a regular size door. And then it has the uh, roll down metal door for night to close it up. And it was actually right in the same uh, industrial park as the original Pixar shop in Point Richmond. So that was kind of fun. Steve Jobs would complain to us now and then. But anyway, um, so now I had been working there for a number of years. And there was always, you know, kind of birds. You use like blackbirds. They're like the parking lot birds here in California. And they never even came near the door. There's nothing for them inside the shop. But when I was with her, Every once in a while, you'd have one of the birds would look, come walk straight in the door, come over and look at me, and then just walk straight out. And it wasn't like a case of, you know, a bird getting confused and flying in there accidentally. It would be very purposeful, just like in, out. And so I call, I asked her, I'm like, Darshow. And she's, she's got like super embarrassed and flustered. And she's like, well... I can't turn into a deer because you're thing. And I'm like, why don't you can call on the phone? We have technology these days. But um, yeah, so for, and then after we were together, that, that did not happen. Hmm. So, so yeah. then what is your, um, you have these experiences, mm -hmm. Buddhist monastery, and are you studying as well? Are you studying this stuff, getting your hands on all the books you can read or um how, how does how do you fill out your knowledge base of this stuff well, uh like the sex stuff yeah the sex magic and, and like are or do you i guess like what is your mm -hmm. i don't know if there's a concentration or specialty but i mean it, it do you look more at um well obviously doing sex magic it seems personally but then also like mythology um do you look at patterns in the occult and alien abduction and that sort of thing. Like how far do you take uh, your sort of study of it, I guess? 
For me, I am interested in all of it. I've always been one of those people that just has like a voracious mind. Um, I used to read like a lot and have a really good memory for um, everything. And then uh, when I was around 45, I got Lyme disease and it scrambled my brain big time. <laughs> mm. But um, so I've got, you know, I, I mean, and that's part of the thing I found is that when you, when you get, when you get old and you, bless you, that's my dog. Oh, all That's all over. He, um, you can, you can have times and you kind of focus on one aspect and then focus on another. And personally, I find that for any person who has a, an interest, a sincere interest in the esoteric, the occult, uh, magic, uh, spiritual development, expansion of consciousness, it is great to keep that in mind. Um, cause I had it at that one time, uh, in my, um, I want to say, you know, like late 20s, early 30s, when uh, my life came together in a way where I was able to, um, you know, be sitting with uh, Leslie Temple's group uh, every month when she came up from New Mexico, you know, having like a whole weekend just devoted to that. Um, I uh, have done a lot of reading in the past. I studied anthropology and archaeology uh, when I was younger. I took uh, in college. I also took um, art history and art practice. I studied a lot of music. I took a lot of science courses, especially through high school. And then as part of archaeology, you take a lot of uh, hard science courses too. History of science. Um, I've done over the years, a ton of reading into especially uh, UFO accounts. Not so much the last while, though recently I've started to get into it again. Um, so I'll kind of have these these ups and downs. Um, there's a woman who's kind of like the patron saint of sex magicians named Ida Craddock. And I feel a deep kinship with her in the way that she was just like incredibly voracious. I, I studied a lot of mythology uh, growing up as a kid and then in terms of anthropology as well. Um, well, can I, can I stop you there? Because mm -hmm. I want to oh, ask yeah. you some questions about this, because I really, like, yeah. I don't know anything about this stuff. But, uh, no, <laughs> uh, well, in terms of, you know, when we talk about non-consensual human sex, rape, we say that it's not sex, that it's about control yeah. and manipulation and power. And, uh, but then when it comes to, um, you know, either mythological or even alien abduction or ghost, you know, type um, unwanted encounters. We don't talk about it really in terms of rape necessarily. Um, is there a reason for that? Is there, what's the description? I mean, an unwanted encounter, and maybe I'll ask it this way. Does it secretly have a purpose that makes it not rape? Not in my view. I, and this is one of the things that I'm always coming back to. And I think it just sound, makes everything sound boring. But um, when it comes to discarnate entities or demi-carnate, semi-carnate entities, you know, ghosts, Bigfoot, whatever, um, and humans, it, it so much of it is just the same. And if you don't want it, if you do not consent, then that's, I don't care who's doing it, that's assault, that's rape. Um, conversely, if it's a, uh, 
you know, discard if it's a ghost and you have a deep sympathy with them and emotional in intimacy, then um, to me, then that can be a very loving connection as well. Um, so it all comes to me down to the uh, consent and the intention. And I think a lot of people that have uh, these um, sexual encounters in, uh, for example, uh, UFO or flying saucer alien type context, it can be uh, definitely traumatic and it's assault and violent. And I don't know, I it should not be... Uh, brushed aside because it can be incredibly I've had um I've never had anything where I felt like it was kind of like an alien entity or um a flying saucer or unidentified light encounter myself I've had a lot of different types of encounters with for example uh dead people and um I had one of a person who had died in a very traumatic way and I had an intense uh meditation experience of what they had gone through. And uh, as a result, many decades later, I still have intense claustrophobia. So I am, do not doubt one whit that people that have these uh, horrible, uh, you know, assault encounters situations in um, the alien or UFO context, you know, it can be just as, as terrible and uh, it cause lasting trauma. Um, well, it seems like in the UFO so, context, yeah, I don't agree with that. I, at least sometimes in the mm -hmm. UFO context, you could maybe get an answer as to why yeah. this is going on in some way. But do, does anyone, are there any accounts that you know of in terms of ghosts and that sort of, where they find out why this is happening to them? Um, well, in my own case, I have been, um, and I was thinking just recently that I'm, I'm fortunate this way. Um, because a lot of uh, paranormal or encounters can be very traumatic or bring up very unpleasant uh, emotions or, or hard experiences for people. Um, but somehow I've gotten kind of tagged as the lady uh, that you tell your uh, nice, uh, sexy story to. <laughs> for example, I know a couple of different people who... Um, well, very like idiocratic. They knew someone when they were alive and they had a friendship or a connection with them and then, uh, or were married to them, uh, you know, erotically involved. And then the person unfortunately died. And then later on, this person is like, Hey, you, <laughs> I remember you. And they have, uh, a continued sexual, um, relation, erotic relationship. And, um, it's fat. To me, what seems to be a, a constant in a lot of these relationships um, that are consensual and intimate is that um, there's kind of a, a, a teaching element between, for example, the, the person who has passed on and the living person. Um, I, I know uh, one woman and her uh, old uh, husband who died will come back and she'll have like these dreams where it feels like he's trying to teach her uh, certain esoteric practices. And sometimes she can remember and sometimes she can't. And the frustration of that, um, you have to develop that skill to be able to have that uh, continued uh, uh, communication. Um, another person I know, uh, his uh, girlfriend died and he has been working in uh, a kind of in a chaplain position um, to help uh, people in hospice. And 
she's been helping him with that. He's been feeling her very strongly as a, a kind of like a joint project, which makes a lot of sense when you, you know, I mean, as you're helping people cross over, if you have one person on either side of that uh, veil between the living and the dead, it's like a, bit, a better support system for whoever you're helping. Um, there is a woman I want to mention, uh, Dr. Megan Rose, and she has written a book called Spirit Marriage, and she has a lot of uh, excellent free material on her website as well, uh, videos you can watch and stuff. But she did her uh, PhD dissertation on, and it resulted in her book Spirit Marriage, on these um, relationships of marriage between humans and discarnate entities. And she talks to uh, people in these marriages from a number of different traditions, uh, fairy, uh, Haitian voodoo, um, and uh, I think one lady has a relationship with Odin. And she has found this uh, as well, that a lot of these um, different traditions or uh, marriages um, tend to be in furtherance of uh, communication between the two realms and try and base a lot of it has a lot of uh, overlap with what you see in a lot of UFO encounters, which is that these entities are saying we need to get in a better relationship with the ecology and the, the planet generally um, huh. there. So if people are interested, Dr. Megan Rose, yeah. That's interesting. So, so just that, one more that question along these lines, because uh, I'm, I'm just trying to get it if there are commonalities he in this area of um well like i guess in consent i mean everything you're talking about in a sense is like these relationships that existed prior to death or that there's some sort of consent in death to mm -hmm. carrying it on but in in you know abduction literature as i'm sure you're familiar there's plenty of experiencers who talk about you know, they don't know why this is yeah. happening, whether it's sexual or not, just the experience itself. I, I'm not really sure, but I have this feeling on some unconscious level that I agreed to this. Mm -hmm. Is there anything like that with the ghost stuff or even the God, demigod, deity stuff uh, where there's the unconscious? I feel like it's right there. I don't know what it is, but I feel like I agreed to this. See, this gets into an issue that I have with... Uh, certain people in the paranormal community because they they ooga booga everything and try and make everything super scary and we go out and hunt these ghosts and it was like this big murder and it was ah! and that does not help people and it gets people freaked out about developing any of their own capacities as far as uh, being psychic or in pk or uh, being able to uh, go out of the body and what will help you in these type of situations, now it's, it's not a panacea, but if you can develop those type of skills, you have a better chance um, at setting your own boundaries and not getting so much of the skeevy stuff. Because like I was saying, just like with you know living people, you have uh, dead people and other entities that don't care about you. Now, people that are thinking, have this feeling that they agreed to something, Again, let's look at human people. If you have a uh, someone who is, let's say, a minor person who is being groomed for abuse by an adult, right? Someone with uh, more capacity and control, uh, intellectual capacity, social status, more control over the situation. What are they going to try to do to that person? They're going to try and make them feel complicit in their own abuse. 
why is this, you know, so you see this reflected in a lot of these UFO encounters. Um, I have another uh, one experience that I think, well, it informs my own personal views on these matters. Um, so when I was living at the, uh, uh, it was a meditation center, it wasn't like a monastery, but um, we had a, a certified Rinpoche living there. And uh, I learned, first of all, I wanna say, I learned a lot from him. He was very adept. Um, he was human like the rest of us. So um, I, I'm living there, things are happening. Okay, so one night I'm just laying there asleep and I'm dreaming and I'm there in my bedroom and I'm looking at the door of the bedroom and it opens and Rinpoche walks in and I just woke right up. And you know how um, you have that, that kind of sight, like after the orchestra stops and that kind of ringing silence, I was just like in my room, like what the heck went on? So I had no idea what that was about. Um, but after that, he started to treat me with a lot more respect um, and be more straight across with me. So I knew that whatever, you know, <laughs> something had, had actually gone on. And this is something I always trying to convey to people. When you have these like odd experiences, look at what's happening around you in the material agreed upon world and see if, if anything has changed. This could give you a clue as to whether or not this is just something in your head or if there's something more to it or, or what that might be. Anyway, uh, so we're going along. Um, later on, uh, a couple who had been uh, big students of his across the country decided to sell everything and they were gonna move to the center and, and get um, things whipped into shape because it was a little kind of low key. So they were gonna get uh, Rinpoche given empowerments, given teachings and whip things into shape. Okay, so this lady was very, um, kind of take charge woman. Anyway, so she hadn't been living there that long. And she says, oh, I'm gonna go uh, shopping down in, in Berkeley at this one part uh, off Gilman. And um, you wanna come down? So I'm like, sure. So we get down there and we're looking at clothes. She's like, Stephanie, I had this dream last night and I just, I have no idea what it could mean. And I was wondering if you could, if I could tell you and you could just give me any ideas. So I'm like, sure, you know, I'm not a big, any big dream interpreter, but, I'll, you know, whatever. So she says, well, I had this dream that I was um, dreaming and Rinpoche came to me and he said um, that if I had sex with him and didn't tell anyone about it, then I would get like all this good karma and advancement and everything, but I had to keep it a secret. I'm like, well, I think it means that <laughs> if you sleep with Rinpoche and keep a secret, <laughs> He's going to give you, she's like, no, I just, I can't think of what it means. I'm like, Ugh. but I had seen some uh, other, especially younger women in the kind of greater community who had had some real, they, they'd made some like uncomfortable comments and things they didn't want to talk about with Rinpoche. And it put my whole dream in a different light, right? I, it, Tibetan Buddhism is known for having this tradition of uh, training people from the time that they're very small in these uh, various uh, psychic techniques and dream yoga is a big one. And um, I think that there is kind of a, a similar, similar relationship, right? If you're just kind of your average 
Western slob dreaming <laughs> fitfully or hap haphazardly. And then someone who's been training for, in his case, like half a century at that, yeah, <laughs> at that point comes in, who's going to have the upper hand, right? It's like if you're just an average slob going into the courtroom against a trained lawyer, right? It's an unfair advantage. And so they can, you can um, be caught that way into feeling like you've agreed and maybe you did, but it was in a completely unfair circumstance. And I wonder if that could be something else that's happening in some of these um, entity contact situations where people are feeling, well, maybe you did agree. Maybe they got you in some weird altered state of consciousness where you, you had, you know, they had every advantage and got you to agree. So well, let me ask you, so yeah. as alive people, um, people, a lot of folks who do occulty <laughs> stuff, in fact, probably all of them are doing it to gain some mm -hmm. sort of power, to have power over, you know, the mystical arts or whatever. Um, and so we think nothing of it, right? Like of trying to conjure a spirit, bring it here, do what we want with it, get what we want from it. And yet, I think a lot of it. <laughs> well, and, and yet, it, so could they be doing the same thing? Like when you talk about sex as magic, is there magic that they're doing on their end? Because it seems like an awful big chore to come up with, you know, whip up some sort of ethereal genitalia to, uh, you know, to have uh, physical sex with people or whatever as a succubus or whatever it is. And uh, so I'm trying to look for like a purpose. <laughs> to all of this. And, and if there's a purpose on our end to try to do sex magic, is there any evidence that they're doing sex magic on their end or that they're receiving something along those lines, some sort of uh, occult powers or, you know, is there some purpose in, to that to that angle, I guess, of it for them? Well, um, I was trying to argue with uh, someone recently who's been a guest with Whitley Strieber that, um, I, there, I have developed a unified theory of the paraweird and paranormal, which is that uh, people are trying to get laid. <laughs> this is not just live people. <laughs> I think that there's uh, multiple answers. A lot of, uh, for example, possession cults, for example, classical Haitian voodoo, um, that's one way to entice the spirits here is that there are uh, pleasures of the flesh, so shall we say, uh, that you can't experience once you're simply in spirit and that it's, um, you know, you can get drunk or eat food or, you know, have sex or go swimming in the ocean or dance, right? Uh, listen to music, all of these type of sensual experiences that, that just aren't the same when you're out of the body. And so this is one way to kind of coax spirits here. Um, and then I think that... Uh, uh, Dr. Rose has identified something uh, there that when you have these um, spirits that want to create uh, changes in the material world, because they're not separate, right? The, the material and uh, spiritual or more subtle worlds are constantly interacting and affecting one another. Um, and developing that type of uh, intimate, erotic, uh, committed relationship, for example, like spirit marriage, is for whatever reason, seems to be a classic technique for creating that type of alliance between the realms. Um, various type of shamanic or ecstatic indigenous practices all over uh, the world have uh, spirit marriage or spirit spouses. It's one of the ways that you become a, a bigger practitioner.
Um, and that's one way for the spirits to make uh, actual changes and, and get a, a foot in the door here back on the material plane. Um, and then also, I think sometimes it just comes down to uh, horniness or, um, you know, real love, attraction to, to, some, to someone. I mean, look at Zeus running around. <laughs> And suddenly, you know, you're doing fine. And then you see this one person and it just, you know, I think it can happen to the uh, discarnate entities as well. So I don't know. So let me, I think a lot of it is a mystery, though. I want to ask you, turn the page here <laughs> to something else <laughs> that is, it's really, you know, the only other thing that I've been thinking about in terms of this stuff. I'm like, hmm. Uh, when people do like people who came up with ye old sex uh, ritualistic stuff, magic, tantra, that sort of thing. When we do it nowadays and we make it like especially tantra, make it about uh, a loving reunion between two people or whatever, you know, we make it less about the sex magic-y stuff and more about whatever our modern minds want it to be. Is the effect the same, do you know? Mm -hmm. Or is the effect diluted when you take it out of its cultural context and bring it into something different? Okay, so there's different ways that you, that, okay, Tantra, first of all, is like this huge set of practices that, that go way beyond just Tantric sex. You're supposed to be approaching everything in your life with this type of uh, consciousness and devotion towards uh, uh, achieving enlightenment as quickly as possible. Uh, so that you can help reduce the suffering of all sentient beings, right? It's a Ma Mahayana tradition. Uh, at least as I have had it explained to me, which means that you're not just concerned about your soul enlightenment, but uh, you have the type of enlightenment which uh, lets you uh, have the insight that we are all intimately connected. So you need to have, it's like we're all, we're all going together or none of us are getting there, right? Um, so, and, and there's also, a, many different forms of sex magic, even in the Western tradition. Um, so if you look at, for example, like a, a, a tantric union practice, um, it tends to be one, and if you want to uh, read someone who has studied this uh, intensively and is also a practitioner and also a wonderful, sensible, fun person, uh, Ben Jaffe, Dr. J ben uh, Jaffe has been studying householder practitioners of Tibetan Buddhism um, in his academic work. And he uh, has written uh, a number of articles and also a book. I think his blog is called The Perfume Skull. A perfume skull, uh, B E N J O F F E. Um, so he writes and uh, speaks about this uh, uh, very articulately, and he has a lot of uh, insight into it. Um, and it's not—it's not just like academic insight. As I said, he's a practitioner as well. So a lot of these techniques have to do with transmission, and this is something that I, I had a conversation with uh, Ben about, which I really appreciated. You read these texts or you come across these myths and there's like the written the written word on the page or the spoken word. This is like in many cases a vehicle for a certain energetic uh, thought form, emotional, conceptual uh, transmission to come through. 
or to put you in contact with certain uh, spiritual entities who will be supporting you in your practices and helping you. Um, and one way of accomplishing this is through uh, sex. I was talking with uh, Wild Trees, who's a biologist. And he was talking about, uh, in terms of, um, you know, we talk about energy in uh, 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 like a poltergeist phenomenon or something. And he's like, he's saying, you know, when people are emotionally uh, agitated or aroused, you literally do put out more energy, you know, just in terms of calories and EMF emissions and stuff like that. Um, so if you have two people and they are both sexually aroused, um, it is possible to become more intimate with each other's energy bodies, form a kind of an informational connection and have transmission of um, knowledge, uh, states of consciousness, uh, ritual techniques. And a lot of uh, sex magic practices in the East are uh, based on that kind of principle or that type of a process. As well, there is this idea that if you are able to uh, maintain a stable uh, state of a certain uh, expanded states of consciousness, uh, various types of uh, samadhi, um, this can create kind of a beacon or uh, like a lighthouse, uh, a, a wave over the landscape that helps to kind of soothe things and dissolve karma and uh, just kind of uplift things emotionally, uh, encourage people to um, pursue uh, compassion and wisdom and enlightenment. Um, and so you can perform this type of uh, cosmic union as kind of a blessing on the land. Um, then there's various uh, uh, Taoist practices, which I know a little tiny bit about, but they also have to do as well with these uh, kind of creating a um, an energy configuration between the two of you. <laughs> That helps to um, kind of make these best blessings and boons coming out over over the land. Um, and then also there's a way that you can use the uh, sexual arousal and excitement to kind of fuel these higher states of consciousness um, in one or both partners. You can have one person kind of be in the supporting role and one uh, going out there <laughs> in samadhi or whatever. Um, so there's a lot of, so that's getting more towards like an erotic mystical practice because I would disagree. I think there's a lot of occultists who uh, pursue it not for power or practical means, but as a way of um, pursuing truth and um, knowledge of the self and to become more adept in order to be able to help other people. Um, so I don't know if that is helpful. Let me ask you this sort of on a, a related question i guess which is um do you where do you fall on the the question of um whether you can always take a ritual or whether it's sex magic or anything out of its cultural context and just sort of distill it down to its basic elements uh and and do it that way like chaos magic if you just put all of your focus into something and, and, and release it into the universe and forget about it. Does it always 
come back to you? Or do you need whatever the cultural context is that you have, you know, derived this from as well? Um, because, you know, when we hear like from the Lakota and I'm sure other First Nations people that, you know, culture comes from the land, that implies to me that there are certain things that will work in certain parts of the world or certain parts of the land, even um, wherever you are, that won't work in other places. Um, and that's true on a practical level, right? Of just like things that you would food, <laughs> things that grow there and, and all that. But then would it also exist on this other level that comes out of culture, this sort of, you know, the metaphysical level, are there certain things that you, you just can't take out of their cultural context? This is a, no, this is a huge question. And I, uh, I'm glad that you're asking it. Cause I, to me, this is kind of one of the things that I find fascinating about, um, for example, uh, UFO reports, um, entity reports and stuff, because first of all, I think it's, it's really important to, if you, and especially if you uh, have a sincere interest in anything that you need to respect, uh, what the people who hold that tradition have to say, do they want it to be closed? Do they want you to be practicing it? How do they think it should be practiced and approached? Um, cause you need to show that basic respect just to other human beings. At the same time, it's a sticky question because, um, like for me, uh, when I had my near-death experience, I had no con. I was getting given, you know, specific concepts and practices, and I had no idea or context for any of it. And it turned out it was for seven years. I had no idea at all where it came from. I just knew that it worked and I knew that I trusted these beings. And my uh, boyfriend at the time took me to an uh, uh, exhibition of Tibetan Buddhist art, which was happening at the uh, De Young Museum, I think, in San Francisco. And, um, you know, of course, everything is, is this inc incredible tradition, uh, gorgeous pieces, um, really wonderful. But then I saw this one black danka of Paul Dan Lamu who is a protector uh, deity. She's a goddess who protect, a spe special protectress of the Dalai Lama. And I said, this does not look anything like what I saw in my vision, but that person, they're painting about the same thing that happened to me. And that was the first clue that I'd had uh, and that somehow this bit of Tibetan Buddhist transmission had come at me <laughs> from like, some like white girl in Berkeley, <laughs> you know, interestingly enough, when I first uh, got to the uh, center and Rinpoche was doing like a kind of Chenrezig meditation, which is kind of, uh, you don't need any empowerments. Anyone can practice it. It's kind of like the uh, entry level practice. And he was talking about this meditation, which is like, you know, you, you visualize this uh, light, uh, shining out of your chest and you have healing liquid that's coming down from the top of your head down into your chest and feeding this light and you're, you're breathing at the same time right so when I had this procedure before my near-death experience what it was is he uh, had a bronchoscope which my doctor put up my nose and then down into my lungs and it had a laser on the end of it. So I had, you could see like a red light. I could see it shining out of my chest. And then he put this liquid lidocaine down. So he, and 
we were very close. We're staring at one another. I'm like breathing in this healing liquid that's coming down from my head into my chest towards this bright light, and which is like this Chenrezy meditation. So I was doing that when then I get this Tibetan Buddhist near-death experience, <laughs> which hmm. I never heard. <laughs> which makes me wonder about the... And it goes back to your um, question of how how do these ideas and energies come through from these more subtle planes into our shared reality? And it shows why you might want to have a certain ritual set up in a certain way that I suspect that that's how some of these entities uh, know where to show up or that someone's interested in them. Right. Right. And but yeah, like I mean, it certainly yeah. seems to work that way for entities. Like even like thinking about like Jeff Kripal, uh talking about mm -hmm. having an Indian deity encounter in India. Now, would he have that in in Wyoming? No, probably not. And yet, could he do uh, some sort of Indian ritualized magical ceremony or something in Wyoming and have it work the same as it would in India? I guess that's it. Could he, again, distill it out in the same way that, um, you know, even uh, pharmacologists now are trying to distill out DMT from the actual uh, plants to, you know, yeah. create hallucinogenic uh, trips in, in the lab setting and all of that? I mean, is it all is it all that? Is it all just you find the kernel and the root and then you can just have the same experience that you would have in India uh, under the other circumstances, under the other conditions? It, I wonder, and here's the other thing too, is that you have uh, certain conditions on the land. You're going to have a certain ecosystem. And you, when you have, uh, well, in the, the animist philosophy and indigenous philosophy, right, uh, certain rocks, uh, algae, fungi, all the different, well, here in California, we have a number of wildflowers. Um, all those flowers have their own uh, medicine and powers and spiritual concerns and abilities that come along with them. Um, it comes along with the uh, the physical flower, right? Mm -hmm. Or physical plant. But then you have these cultures that can come in on top of that. Um I was listening to Consensus Unreality, and they were talking about colonial fairies, right? <laughs> Colonizer fairies, huh. right? So you could have um, the, these kind of uh, mythologies and folklores, uh, ideas, systems of ideas coming over uh, from other areas and then intermingling and um, no doubt taking on characteristics of uh, the, the indigenous um, beliefs and uh, entities. Uh, Santa Muerta in uh, Mexico is an excellent example of this, um, where you have a kind of a meshing of, of these uh, Chthonic uh, Aztec uh, death deities and couples, and then um, uh, the uh, uh, death from uh, the Spanish and uh, Catholic colonizers and images of uh, death with the scythe and the uh, hourglass and the world and meshing into uh, each other uh, because the Aztec, I, I did a couple of interviews with uh, Dr. Kate Kingsbury, who's been looking at this a lot because she's an archeologist and it looks like a lot of the indigenous uh, 
Aztec deities uh, tended to be kind of like uh, the death deities were also fertility deities. You see this a lot, right? You have to have death for life to come through. And they uh, tended to be a couple. So um, when you first see uh, prayers to Santa and Morte coming along, it tends to be along with love magic, which seems counterintuitive to us because she looks more like a Western uh, uh, death with, with the robes and the scythe and everything. Uh, but it's because she has this in, indigenous roots that go to the uh, fertility and the, the married couple of the Aztecs. So I think that type of pro process is interesting. And also, I suspect that the entities on the other side or these discarnate entities, whatever, like gnomes or whatever they may be, fairy, um, that they know that they have to keep up with the times and keep up with what's going on if they want to keep being able to uh, have any influence. So I would not be surprised if they bear that in mind in their activities. And yet they don't wrap any of them. <laughs> yet <laughs> the mind. Um, well now that we are in the subscriber portion of the program um, I, I would love to ask you about some of your experiences including that near-death experience but especially I heard rumors that uh, you may have had an elf encounter and I if that's true I have to hear that <laughs> oh. <laughs> it's an it was a gnome I, I've encountered a gnome and a grinning man What's a grinning man? So, either one. Is it just a man who grins? Well, uh, yeah, it was. Um, <laughs> okay, so uh, John Keel identified these instances where you just have these people and they will see uh, just like a guy. And it tends to be kind of from the like the 50s, 60s type of, you know, it'll be like a, a person who has a darker complexion. Mm -hmm. um, maybe looks like they're more from the Asian part of the world. And they just be doing this like weird grin where they're just kind of like more burying their teeth, like no humor, standing around enigmatically at weird places and freaking people out. Okay. So I've always, you know, I loved Keel and, and everything. Um, so my uh, husband and I were driving around one time up in the foothills uh, south of Yosemite um, around... Uh, North Fork, which is a town where my mom and dad both uh, spent their summers there growing up. My dad's uncle, Bob, had the gas station for the town. My mom's cousin, Les, had a, uh, like a lodge. So it's kind of like an old-timey bar with like sawdust on the floor and stuff in a room she could rent to sleep in. Um, so, and we spent a, a lot of time camping around there when I was growing up as a, as a kid. And um, also my mom's people go back to pretty much that area of the world. She, uh, uh, her uh, mom's uh, dad was a member of the Chansey tribe, which is a Yokup tribe in that, from that part of the world. Um, and I got bought out of my, any uh, claims to uh, land rights in 1972. They had a big, uh, terrible deal that went down here in California where they bought out a ton of indigenous people's uh, land rights. Anyway, so um, I was, this is probably about 20 years ago. My husband and I hadn't been too married too long. We were driving around in the foothills and everything. And 
this is like at around like between uh, 25, 4,500 feet altitude is pretty mountainy. And you have a lot of these little tiny roads where the, the only way to get between two places is like on this, this one road. Um, so we were on Toll House Road and we had just turned onto this one part of it where there was like a intersection. And we see this guy and he looks like he is probably a, a California Indian dude standing on the side of the road. He's pretty dark and just wearing kind of like regular clothes. There were, we hadn't seen cars for I don't know how long. And he's standing there like with that same weird grin that Keel talks about, you know, just kind of like varying your teeth, a lot of teeth. That's kind of a weird dude. It's like, okay. And then we're kind of wondering like where, I mean, this is pretty much before cell phones. So we're kind of like, this guy's way out here in the middle of nowhere. I hope whatever but he didn't act like he wanted to ride or anything so we drove i don't know i think it's like about five miles along this part of old toll house road and it's kind of there's an old uh, reservoir there and everything and it's a very old road for that part of the uh of the world and just as we're rolling into north fork and there's like another crossroad we see the same guy huh <laughs> at this you know standing by the side of the road grinning again now Every for him to get to there, anybody, and we hadn't had any cars pass us, no other cars come along on all the stretch of road. The only other way that he could have gone around there would have taken probably about like an hour longer. There's like no way he could get there, basically. And there he was. So it is funny because it's like one of the few things that um, my husband has experienced with me uh, that he'll cop to. He's like, yeah, he's like, either that was like a paranormal thing or that guy has like a, an identical twin or a cousin or something. And they have a weird sense of humor for pranking people. But the odd thing was that when I told this story to my dad, he's like, oh, yeah, he knew exactly where it was. You know, they grew up in there. And I said, you know, it's weird because I, I said it was beautiful, that road. I've never been on it before. He's like, yes, you were. Um, when... Uh, your mother was pregnant with you was the last time that I drove that road. So it's kind of weird because even there you have like the connect, even though it's not like uh, hybrid alien babies, you see like the connection with reproduction. Right. It's calling back to. So, it, yeah. so it, it didn't have anything to do with anything else that day. It wasn't like a premonition or, a, you know, a warning of something. Mm -mm. Huh. That's interesting. No, it was just one of those kind of, things that happened but it was definitely it was very disorienting if you are f if you are familiar with that part of the world because it's just <laughs> there's no way that this person could be there and they're just there staring at you with this grin <laughs> hmm. so and so what was then the I elf also saw a, <laughs> not the elf the gnome <laughs> wait, I, I, I think the gnome <laughs> this is and this is another thing because it also has a kind of connection to like reproduction and then family connections too. Um, so I have always, well, always been a walker. And then especially after my near death experience, cause my beings are like, you know, you really, for various reasons, you really walking is excellent exercise and it helps your uh, subtle bodies as well as uh, your physical bodies, blah, blah, blah. So I, I'm the type of person, you know, I'll, I'll be walking, I don't know, like 20, 30 miles most weeks when I'm healthy. I got lupus about three years ago. And the worst part of it for me has been that I've had a hard time walking. But anyway, 
so I was living in Albany and so Albany is uh, like right north of Berkeley and it, it's it's kind of flat like here, here's the you know the bay and then it's kind of a flat area and then the mountains come up here right um so I would kind of walk down from my house and walk across and then go up and then come down like that so this is all taking place on the flat part of Albany so I don't know why I'm bringing up the mountains <laughs> but um so I by the time that this experience happened to me, I probably walked along that particular stretch of road. It was just kind of like suburban housing stuff um, several hundred times at least. And uh, so I was just, uh, I walked up and I was walking back towards home and about a block and back of me, maybe a block and a half, there was a small church and they had uh carillion bells or a, a bell that would ring out the uh, time and so i had this weird experience where it's like the bell started going off and then i uh heard kind of behind me someone say like what time is it and at about i don't know, like 10 o'clock across the street was a woman who looked uh, kind of like 40s style kind of old-timey kind of like a woman in black kind of thing, kind of gray. And then in front of me on uh, the sidewalk, I don't know, a, a, like maybe one or two houses, houses in front of me um, was like this real short guy who was really hairy. He was wearing clothes. And I believe that he was, he didn't move at all. I believe that he was looking back and he was like levitating kind of like maybe three or four inches off the ground. He was probably, I don't know, maybe about a yard, um, three and a half feet tall. He didn't look, he didn't have like antennas or anything like that. <laughs> he just could go like a person, but like very small. So I kind of took all this in and then between one step and the next, it's like, boom, everything went away. Everything was quiet. And I could tell that like about 40, 45 minutes had passed. It was weird because I had this missing time thing and it's like I... You think, how would you know? I knew right away. And then I didn't know, I didn't know how I knew. I looking back on it, I think it's because I, I walked that so often and it wasn't foggy that day. So you know the sun, the movement of the sun would be apparent. But again, I never it, I don't think it was a premonition of anything. I don't think it was just one of those weird things that happened. I still have no idea what happened during that missing time. What's interesting about that to me, though, is that it was um, happened just like a couple blocks away from um, my dad uh, and mom divorced when I was about 20. And then uh, he was single a while and then he met uh, my bonus mom, Doris, and they got married probably about, I don't know how long they've been married now. It's terrible. I hope they don't listen. <laughs> but um Anyway, this was before he'd met her, but this happened just within like a two or three blocks of where she was living and and then where her parents were living because she's one of those people that uh, grew up and moved out uh, around the corner from her parents. <laughs> um, so it was like right where I was going to have, you know, this, this big family coming up was right there. And then half a block from there was where um, a few years later, I was working for a software company and my boss got pregnant. And when she was 
pregnant and had just given birth, she ended up moving into a house that was like a half block from where that incident occurred later on. So again, it's kind of like family and babies. And um, it was also an interesting location because it, there is an underground creek that runs right along that road where I was. Um, and it's right next to the BART tracks, which are, is an electrified uh, transit system that runs an electric rail. So... So what what do you I mean and it doesn't you've had time to think about all this <laughs> in your life what what do mm -hmm. you make of this you know when we talk about the visitors and the dead um and now you're talking about um the ghosts and the sex um or you know this all <laughs> right like all of this uh Life, death, procreation, um, you know, and in terms of fairy folklore or even abduction, and I would just say probably hypnotically retrieved testimony for whatever that's worth to distinguish. Mm -hmm. You get the hybrid stuff. Um, mm -hmm. What where, what are we to do with this? Why are all of these, why are these three, you know, life, uh, death, and birth, I mean, like babies, not just life per se but like actual babies why are these so entwined in um mythological i don't even know what that word means anymore if you're talking about fairies you know in lore in lore that seems to happen to people what mm -hmm. do you think that is why why is why is it entwined through all of these different appearances of paranormal and supposedly alien uh activities in people's lives have you been able to figure that out? And if so, uh, do you get the Nobel Prize? Or like, how does that... It's such an unfair question, I know. Like... Well, as I go back to my unified theory, people are horny. Um... <laughs> Everywhere, wherever you are in the universe. Well, if you look at... Um... Now, of course, I've, I've had interest in science and biology, and I am a bird watcher, and I like to spend a lot of time in nature, and... If you look around at the world that we live in, it is the way it is because of sex and sexual reproduction. We had life before sex, um, but once it got sex got involved, things just really took off. I mean, it's like an incredible vehicle for uh, communication and creativity. Um, things can just move on at an incredibly huge, fast pace as far as generating novelty um, and then putting it out there and seeing what happens. So I think if you start to look at just from the, the biological angle of, of sex and how influential it has been on shaping our planet. I mean, look at the, the huge biodiversity that we have just in like the last uh, few thousand years here on earth. And then, you consider that we're, we're what on like the seventh extinction event or something. This has been renewed multiple times, this huge amount of diversity. And it's largely because of sex um, and sexual reproduction. So it's kind of foolish to think that it's not going to be influential in, um, in the subtle realms as well. And in our uh, folklore and stuff, I think partly too, these experiences tend to happen. One of the things that's fascinating to me about Idocratic is because you have uh, mythology, you have 
uh, Zeus and the Fae and all type of um, uh, indigenous folklore about, um, and it's always, you know, some guy, Thomas the Rhymer, right? He's too smooth for school. <laughs> he gets kidnapped by the fairy queen. It's like, I want that one. Zeus is running around. Oh, look at that one, right? People just can't cope. So you have um, kind of the, the ancient world, which is very uh, into all this. And then it starts to become very strong again with the uh, alien uh, abduction lore, starting with uh, like in the 60s with the, the hills and stuff. And again, there's a reproductive angle to that. Though it's been very kind of technologized in a lot of it, though not completely. But Idocratic was writing in the Edwardian era. And she personally had a uh, marriage with a ghost um, that was erotic. And then she has also a number of other uh, of accounts of people who have uh, visitations from either uh, people or God, angels that are very erotic. And they're very uh, reminiscent of uh, these kind of bedroom visitations, like uh, something that would happen to like David Huggins or something. But it's kind of in that gap there between the kind of classical folklore and the, uh, the modern day abduction um, encounter reports. So I think partly it's just something that happens. Who well, but, so when, when we're, as we're, we've been talking about um, sex or sexuality in terms of magic, um, it, but then, and then when it comes to abductions, like you're saying, it's, it's technological. It gets interpreted as, Oh, they've got this reason to do it. They, they're wiping themselves out. Now they need to make hybrids or whatever it is. We're wiping ourselves out and they need to make hybrids. Mm -hmm. Um, so what do you, like, if there isn't a literal thing going on there, if there aren't literally aliens from another planet doing this, and it does fall into the realm of the esoteric, uh, why do you think it doesn't present more in an esoteric way? Why, do you, why does it present as, like, a technological, cut-and-dry, alien doctors doing X? Is that, is that our just interpretation of what's going on through a, our, our modern lens, or... Uh, is it actually presenting that way or both? I guess it could be both. But like, why why not the magical element to it to give us a clue, for instance, that it's not to be taken literally seriously, you know? Well, we have been given the clue. Was it was it uh, uh, Shermer who had the encounter where they said, uh, we want you to believe in us, but not too much? Right. And a lot of these, um, and this is one of my frustrations with that, uh, Although it, it's it's uh, coming around a lot more uh, these days, but there's a lot of people that are very uh, nervous about paying attention to someone who'll come in and say, "Yeah, I'm a psychic. I'm a medium. Uh, I'm a practitioner." Uh, if you look at this particular encounter, you got X, Y, and Z. Because um, a lot of these things, like when you look at for some, oh, who's the guy that got. Uh, he was hunting elk and he got uh, abducted and then they have that weird cube with all the elk in it. Oh, I don't know. It was like an alien. Ab oh, it's very wild. Anyway, but I mean, that's like a classic kind of an astral vehicle that you would construct if you were trying to do some type of ritual magic, right? You can construct these forms out of like thought and emotional energy and attention. And um, if you get good at it and you have a sympathy with other people, then uh, they can perceive them and uh, construct them along with you. 
Um, if people want to read, and she has some, she's a woman of her time, Dion Fortune. She has racist, classic, uh, and uh, sexist viewpoints. However, her book Moon Magic is, in my view, uh, very instructive for people who are interested in these things because she lays it all out exactly. How do you create sympathy with a magical practitioner? How do you construct the astral temple? And it's through these thought forms. And if you look at something like that, you know, cube and it's bigger on the inside than it is on the outside, it can change shape. This is like a classic um, thought form, whatever you want to call it, that uh, ritual magicians and uh, will be making as part of their workings. This would be like the form in which you can perform uh, whatever ritual it is that you're interested in doing. And recently I've been thinking more about um, these type of vehicles and does it have to just be human beings that are quote driving them unquote, right? You can have a, a, a car that's made so a parrot can drive it, right? <laughs> they can pedal it and drive with its little beak right? Um, a dog can drive a car if it's set up properly for the dog. Now, is this advisable or not? I don't know. Um, but if you have, let's say, some type of a UFO that is an astral uh, subtle vehicle, could this be constructed by, let's say, a hive of bees? And then they're driving it and they want to try and get across something to us about how we need to cool it with the pesticides or insecticides. I don't know, but if you look at it from the esoteric, I was just on um, Our Strange Skies with Rob Christofferson, and we were talking about Betty Andreasen's Luca's experiences. And it's funny because you say, why don't they give you the thing? I think she was able to get more out of her experiences because she was very uh, well versed in reading the Bible and reading uh, these symbolic texts. Like she she clocked these as um, discarnate entities as a, a different order of beings right away when they came through the wall. She's like, okay, these must be angels or that class of being, right? And I think a lot of uh, the problem that we have in trying to communicate with these entities um, as technological human beings right now is that people, most people don't have you know, they haven't been studying the Bible as much, or uh, they don't have a, a wide background for looking at these type of phenomena. They don't have facility with altered states of consciousness um, or working with the energy body particularly. And so when these experiences happen, you know, it's completely overwhelming and they don't have much context for it. And then they're, uh, so it could be between them and the aliens. I mean, the aliens or whoever's behind this could be trying to make it seem more palatable to people. Say, well, these people are obsessed with technology. Maybe if we put it across this way, they'll be able to understand. But then, you know, also these people are trying to figure out, okay, what's happening and, and trying to make everything material because we are a more materialistic society. Um, so I think it, it, it could be coming from either or both ends. But I think part of it is that we have lost touch. There's, I mean, there's a lot of societies where, um, you know, you would have a person who is experienced in trance and ecstasy and going into um, states of consciousness where you could talk to other beings about stuff, right? So if you have a big dream or a weird experience, you can go to them, they'll help you out. But a lot of these people 
in modern society, they don't have that type of a background or uh, access to those type of uh, technicians, let's say, technicians of consciousness. Um, or, you know, you're part of a type of a church where everything has to either be through them or it's all of the devil. Um, so, yeah. Technicians of consciousness. I, I smell a new book title. <laughs> um, so, hey, credit me. <laughs> yeah, for you, you, you do the book. Um, so oh, God. You, you mentioned a uh, Tibetan style near-death experience. Mm-hmm. Did you go into what that was? Uh, j- yeah, just a, a little bit. It it's terrible because even today it's hard for me to put it across in words. Um, it was just be- being in the the classical void or bardo, where you know it's like very very loud and it's. Would they would they say it's a near death experience? Like, is that a term that they use? Well, okay. So there is the okay. Tibetan Buddhism is not it's not really like the Catholic Church, where you kind of have like the Pope, and then you have these people that decide, okay, this is dogma, and then everyone is supposed to be bought into that, because each you have all these, um, well, you have like the Dalai Lama who is kind of the, the head of it all, but then you have these various traditions, um, Nyingma, Sakyapa, uh, there's a couple other ones, which I can't remember right now, which is terrible. Um, and they have various practitioners and teachers in those lineages, but they all have like a lot of autonomy. Um, and so as well, when I was um, talking to uh, Rinpoche myself, he there's kind of like the stock answers. Mostly they're going to be telling you to practice and they'll be telling you to uh, try and develop your compassion for other beings and in works, in activities, not just through prayer or meditation. Or just have sex with um, them. Then you can advance that way. No, they, no one said... Yeah, no. Oh. <laughs> the cheat code. Um, yeah. Um, but when it comes down to... It's like a very different teaching style. And it, it there's a bunch of different texts. Um, but it, it's not... It's not like you can just go and say, oh, Tibetan Buddhists say X, Y, Z. You know, it, it's a very, um, it reminds me a little bit of if you uh, uh, get into like rabbinical, rabbinical arguments in uh, uh, Jewish faith. And there, you know, there's various streams and then people will have, uh, go refer to the text, but they're going to be arguing a particular point about it, right? Um, so it's hard <laughs> to say, well, Jewish people believe X, Y, Z, right? I mean, they're, okay. Fair enough. I don't know if, uh, that, if that's helpful or not. Yeah. Uh, but they, no, so, they, it, but yeah. they definitely recognize the, the experience, um, of what, is it being in the void or were you the void itself? What was the experience? It was like being this tiny 
like a, a, ge a Western geometrical point. It's <laughs> like no weight, no mass, just just a position in this void. Hmm. And were um, you scared, or what which was your is feeling? It, yeah. Oh, it, uh, what do you talk about a, a cosmic existential horror? Because it's just so different from how you would think anything could be, and um, you have no, you don't realize how much you're used to like having a body and breathing, and um, being composed, like having electrons being. Around. <laughs> I mean, just all that. I don't even know how to describe it. Just everything gone. But it was also incredibly loud and kind of like very, very full, completely less consciousness kind of um, like emerging fractally from every point. So very overwhelming. Huh. Yeah. I mean, I've heard of that experience, um, probably maybe different versions of it, but that and, and it's always seems to be scary for people or, you know, terrifying or whatever. Uh and I, it's interesting that the universe creates this nothingness scenario that is terrifying uh, uh, and puts you in it, um, as opposed to but being it's also nothingness, in everythingness which is scenario. Well, so my, is there a reason to to have that? Like, do um, the Tibetan Buddhists do they do they? I don't even know if they would tell you, right? But maybe they would. Um, would they say, okay, this is what this experience is for? Or do they just let you figure it out? In my case, I, I mean, it. I think you know, it's just one of those things that happens. But also, I don't know. If I had to guess, I'd say that's the the nat. Well, the, here's the thing. At first, it's terrifying, <laughs> but it's kind of like smoking. You know, first cigarettes, terrible, makes you throw up. It's awful. You know, right? But then that. After a while, you get used to it, and then pretty soon it's pretty good. <laughs> so you start to, you know, it's the same with like these, this kind of like top of your head blown off void thing. Um, and my sense would be that it, this is the, the natural home of that composite entity consciousness that, that are my guides. Um, and for whatever reason, when you're dying or whatever, I, it can happen at, at any time. I mean, it's these mystical uh, awakenings or spontaneous mystical experiences, they happen a lot around uh, medical crises, but they can just happen for no reason, for any reason. Um, so my sense is that if you end up in a, a place like that, some of these beings you know, then they, they know that you're there where you can perceive them and then they can make this transmission. That's interesting. Did you, what was, uh, what was it like during the experience versus when you're thinking about it afterwards? Like when you think about it afterwards, are you sort of transmogrifying it into something else? Are you telling a different story about it than the one that was you in the moment? Well, obviously, yes, because I'm not I'm not like strapped down to a gurney convulsing. <laughs> not to be flipped, but um, <laughs> thankfully, it's a different experience. Um, but no, I mean, I know what you're saying, and it's an interesting type of a experience because with with a lot of these um, expanded 
states of consciousness or those things when you're just having this real clear um, moment of, of powerful uh, consciousness that uh, it's constantly new and you can still think about it and you you it's like you're able to to draw from it once again um so of course every time i'm telling the story it'll be a new story and hopefully because i if i'm telling the story i would hopefully like to try and and convey something of that and something of value to the people that are listening to me um but at the same time well my teacher leslie temple thurston she would recommend that when people have these powerful mystical experiences that you try and uh, write them down or uh, make a drawing or a painting about them. She's a painter. She makes some nice paintings, uh, music or song about it. So capture it in some way um, because it becomes almost kind of like a talisman that helps you to um, reaccess the energy and light and information and um the love that you experienced in that original uh, encounter or moment. So it's a strange uh, thing where it's kind of uh, outside of time, but then constantly uh, erupting into time. That's interesting. Well, perhaps that is the place to leave it. Um, thank you, Stephanie, <laughs> for coming on and sharing your wisdoms. And um, tell us where we can find oh. you on the internets. What the kids call the internet. Well, probably the easiest. The interwebs. <laughs> the interwebs. <laughs> My husband's all, Stephanie, why do you do that? Um, so uh, I have a blog called uh, Ghost Dog is a Mystery Box. And uh, it's at stephaniequick.home.blog. And uh, you can read um, my writing there. And I have a bunch of podcast and video uh, appearances linked there and then also i have links to i'm on twitter and facebook and then email if you want to send me email that way so that's probably the easiest place to go awesome thank you and we'll have a link in the description so if you didn't catch any of that it'll it'll be there Yay. don't worry you'll find her she'll she'll be there <laughs> uh well is there anything that you wanted to cover Looking. that we didn't get to just in uh in closing no, this is this has been a lot of fun. Um, yeah, I just you said, well, you know, I have questions. I'm like, well, I'm sorry that you feel like you have you have to ask me because I'm kind of hapless about all this. I think that some people. Well, that's one of the reasons I wanted to speak about some of these erotic experiences, which is that there's a lot of mystery to them. But I think when I started speaking out about it, I think a lot of people have, uh, you know, even spontaneous erotic mystical experiences. Um, and it, that's one of the beauty of it is that it's something that we can all access. Um, so you don't have to, you know, try and uh, join a cult or go to some church or have a weird guru or something. It's, it's something that, um, you know, it could be there for all of us privately. And so, yeah. So thank you for inviting me to talk about it. Thank you. Yeah. Don't join a cult. That's good advice. <laughs> <laughs> I'm taking it. <laughs> All right. Stephanie, quick, everyone. Okay, perfect. <laughs> Bye. All right, Dreamland, that will do it for this week, but uh, I, I don't go anywhere yet. Uh, see this book? 
See this book that I wrote? Aliens, the first and final disclosure. Um, in a few episodes for me, which means actually a few months, a couple months, I'm going to um, do a solo show about it, about uh, the origins of um, a really huge point that I make in this book and my previous book. I'm to tell you this and I'm to tell you it is fiction. It's a theory that is growing for me into, oh, this actually is true. Um, and it's, I don't know if it's overlooked or just not talked about. I, I don't know, because um, like when I write, especially this book. Now, when I wrote, I know uh, when, I, well, I know why the aliens don't land, which was my first book. Uh, and then I am to tell you this and I'm to tell you it is fiction was like sort of a pseudo sequel gone wrong. It turns into a whole bunch of other stuff. Well, that book um, was sort of an, um, an artistic piece that also happens to be a book. And so I knew it wasn't going to be straightforward. This book, however, Aliens, the first and final, uh, whatever, disclosure, <laughs> uh, is a straightforward book. And I try to lay on the comedy thick, um, especially at the beginning. It's sort of a comedy roast that many of you will find distasteful because you're way into the things I'm lampooning. Um, but I thought that that lightheartedness playing throughout the book, even when it becomes deeper and deeper and deeper, would carry you through a spoonful of sugar, helping the medicine and all. Um, but I keep hearing from people that they have to, you know, read it a number of times um, to really get what I'm saying and that it sticks with them and that it is deep all the way through. And so I, I, I don't know if in that, because there's a lot there that you go, huh, okay. And so I don't want like the, the core premise of like what... Um, what could really be going on here with this thing that we call aliens or visitors or whatever, where they actually are from, what they are about, and what our role in that is. I think that, which sounds like it should be the central premise that everybody's like, oh, wow, amazing, or oh, wow, crap, might actually be the thing that's getting lost in the shuffle. And um, when I first started uh, talking about it in, in I'm to tell you the same, to tell you it is fiction, um, it was... Something that came to me uh, whole, <laughs> the entire vision of it, of how it impacts us and all this came in one foul swoop. And I had thought, and I'd been saying all this time, that that was the origin of it. But actually, it turns out, the origin, um, in a slightly different way, but very, very similar, actually happened years earlier in an experience that I had. Um, that started off as a dream, and I'd forgotten the dream part of it. And I'll, I'll get into all of this later, but it just leads me to believe that this really is onto something here. Now, of course, the problem is when you believe that, the second you believe that about any of your experiences where there's like a communication of some sort, it tends to fall apart or blow up in your face. <laughs> You're just led down rabbit holes. And I want to talk about that too. So I'm going to do that in a solo episode in a few months, and uh, I want you to go run, go to Amazon.com or wherever you get these here books. You can get it through unknowncountry.com. Get the book, be read up, and be prepared for a solo show that should be like, you know, the seminar that you uh, pay good money to see at a UFO conference. But nobody invites me anywhere because uh, 
I blew up hypnosis and abduction research, you know, like a decade ago. So for me, I just get blackballed. Eh, what are you going to do? Uh, what I'm going to do is the solo show that hopefully will blow your mind. Um, so since Stephanie doesn't have a book or anything to promote, I thought, okay, I'll promote mine now and promote this upcoming show. So please get the book, get ready, and uh, I don't know. Let's see where this takes us. For now, the curtain. Take care, everybody. You've been listening to Dreamland. Be sure to tune in again next week. Dreamland is brought to you by UnknownCountry.com and its family of subscribers. Our theme music is The O of Pleasure by Ray Lynch. Unknown Country was founded by Ann Streber. Our news editor is Matthew Frizzell. Our coordinator is Amy Safrankova. Whitley Streber is your Dreamland host, and I'm your announcer, Ted Alexander.